0: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, this is Aaron Lowry of Broke Millennial, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast.
0: We had never really talked about money. I thought as I sat with him at the restaurant, Of course, he knew that I was a doctor, so he knew I made a pretty decent salary. We had also talked about some of the rental properties I own, so he must have known that I had some money, but we never really talked about it directly. So it was with trepidation that I accepted his offer to walk me out to my car. You see, three years ago, I had bought a Tesla Model S. Now, I'm not a very showy person. At the time, I was driving 100 miles a day, and I wanted an electric car, and it was the only electric car that had the range I was looking for. So I did something uncharacteristic. I bought an expensive car. But as we walked out to the parking lot, I could feel my anxiety rising. And as we got to my car, I sensed him shudder. And then he looked at me with big bulging eyes and said, Boy, that medical practice must be doing really well. I didn't have the heart to tell him at the time that I had bought this car three years ago, nor that I was actually drawing back on my medical practice and was making less money than ever. But I could tell that at that moment, everything had changed. And I wondered, knowing what he knew now would he ever treat me the same again? Erin Lowry is a financial translator who makes money easier. She is the three-time author of the Broke Millennial series with her upcoming book, Broke Millennial Talks Money, scripts, stories, and advice to navigate awkward financial conversations, which is set to hit bookstores in late December. Erin, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks so much for
0: having me. I am so happy to be talking to you once again I want to start this conversation with a doozy and just jump right in. Really, your book extensively talks about one main topic and goes into great detail about the specifics, but why, oh, why are we so afraid to talk about money with our friends and family?
1: I believe your opening story really nailed it, and it's the fear of judgment. Like at the end of the day, that's all this is coming down to is we are worried how people are going to perceive us or judge us one way or the other. And that's why I find it so fascinating that people sometimes will say, oh, we don't like talking about money. Oh, I don't think that's true. I think we love talking about money. It's just who are we comfortable talking about it with? And I make this point in the book that I think we're great talking about it with strangers that we're sitting next to on an airplane when we can fly, people that we you know meet at a cocktail party, that there's very limited opportunity for us to maybe run into them again. But if it's somebody that's in your intimate circle, that's when you worry about the judgment, because you also worry that it could shift some sort of foundational piece of your relationship, whether that's a friend, a romantic partner, a family member. Money just has a tendency to screw things up for people in intimate relationships if we don't navigate the conversation well.
0: I totally resonate with what you say, because when I started writing about my personal finances on an anonymous blog, it was incredibly easy to talk to strangers about money, much easier than talking to that relationship, that person that I was out to dinner with. Intimate relations and money, Friends, family, spouses. Let's talk about the biggest conversation I think most of us have about money. And I want to know about your specific experiences. You got married not that long ago. The prenup has to be the most difficult conversation. Tell me about yours. How did you bring that up in your relationship?
1: Oh, I love talking prenups. Okay. So I got married in 2018, but we had been together for 8 years almost to the day. So we've been together almost a decade at this point. And for me, I I will acknowledge I think my pre-nup conversation was a lot easier than most for a couple of reasons. One, I can hide behind the fact that I write and talk about money professionally and this is nothing but a money conversation in a lot of ways. But the thing that I did early is that I brought it up before we were even engaged. We were at that point where it's like, yeah, we're going to get married at some point. We just haven't really figured out when we want to take that step. But it was kind of an inevitability. And for a lot of people, you know, when you reach that point in your relationship, that's when I recommend starting to have this conversation. There's different ways you can bring it up. But for me, I just said, what do you think about having a prenup? I didn't say I want one. I didn't say we have to have one. I said, what do you think about it? Because I genuinely was curious about his reaction to the whole idea. Partly, you know, culturally, religiously with those kind of backgrounds, sometimes there can be immediate backlash. Also, because a lot of people feel like that's only for rich celebrities. Like, why do us normals need to have a prenup? And I really wanted to have a sense of what version I was dealing with before I figured out how to pivot to my pitch about why I think prenups are important. And really, I was, again, very fortunate that his reaction was sort of like, honestly, I've never thought about it. I would just want to kind of learn more about what that means before I really have a conversation about it. And then it was just a really slow boil of a conversation. That is one of the best gifts you can give yourself in a prenup conversation because you do not ever want to put somebody on a time deadline. And you also never want to blame parents. Because I think sometimes what happens... For people, when you're getting married in a position where maybe you're going to inherit wealth or there's family money, then your parents might be the ones that are like, hey, it would be great if you got a prenup. Don't tell your fiance that. Don't be like, my parents said you have to sign this because that's a big way to sour the relationship between the two of them. This needs to be something that the two of you are talking about, agreeing on and discussing uh, well in advance of actually saying I do.
0: There's a level of intimacy with your partner. In fact, you call it in some of your other books, getting financially naked with your spouse or spouse to be. I'm wondering if that intimacy level is different with other acquaintances. Is there a corollary when it comes to friends or coworkers, maybe not full financial nudity, but are there other levels of intimacy that we should be striving for in those other places?
1: I definitely believe that you do not have to achieve full frontal financial nudity (laughs) with your friends. You do not have to tell them how much money you make. You do not have to tell them your net worth. I do think it can be, there's a case to be made for telling them about debt, at least the existence of, if not the actual number. And the reason I do advocate for that is because it helps give them context about why you're making certain decisions, especially if you're saying no a lot. If it's like, Hey, do you want to come to this? No, no. Also, don't just say no, like back it up with either a counter offer or context, because at some point they're going to feel like, yikes, you just decline all the time. I'm going to stop asking. I would love if people felt more comfortable being open. But again, coming back to that feeling of judgment, it's just a bit of a risk because we naturally are very envious creatures. Even if you're super aware and self-actualized, it's really easy to get envious of somebody else's situation. And I think that you just have to be really careful because people can't unknow and unlearn that information once you share it. So you need to know and trust the relationship that you have with a friend before you're going to share something like net worth or salary. And maybe there's a good reason that they're asking you about salary. Maybe you work in the same field, they're applying for a new job, knowing your salary is going to be helpful for them in a negotiation. But outside of that, you just really need to know the relationship dynamic between the two of you, which I know is kind of a vague answer. And I dig into it a bit more in the book, but I think that we just do run these risks of if we overshare information, people can then get jealous, or they also can feel entitled to tell you how you can spend your money, which I think is where really what gets infuriating if they know that you have a certain comfort level and they ask you to do something. And frankly, you just don't value it. It's not that you couldn't afford it. You just don't want to spend your money on that. You really don't need people saying stuff like, well, you can afford it, or it's not that much to you, or that's not that big a deal. So you just have to tread lightly with how much you want to share in that regard.
0: One thing I definitely got from the book is that there are two main issues when it comes to having these really awkward money conversations. One is good communication. And I have to admit that that's something that I came into reading this book thinking, but the second one, which surprised me a little bit was setting boundaries. And I think that gets really to what you're talking about here is how do you decide what boundaries to set with which people? Cause to me, that has to be the hardest part of deciding how to figure out these relationships. I know for me somewhere emotionally, I had set that boundary with my friend that we didn't really talk about our financial intimacies and it blew up in my face a little bit when it became obvious to him all of a sudden that maybe I had more money than he thought.
1: You know, that also brings up this idea of, I don't think people should lie generally about their situation, but at the on the flip side, if you live a very frugal life and it's no one's business what you have in your bank account, save your spouse and perhaps some other family members, but... I think that that's where the disconnect can get it is if somebody perceives that they are on the same footing as you, and then it becomes aware that they're not. That I think is where there's a lot of disruption in relationships. Or, and one thing I talk about a lot, because I feel like for many millennials, this is kind of now becoming a thing as we age, you you and your friends were on the same financial foot in the beginning, but now as careers have progressed and life decisions have been made you could be in very different positions and that also can just lead to some level of tension, even though no one really means for that to happen. And I do think the boundary setting is critical in so many ways. It's critical because it is so easy for other people to spend your money. I recently was narrating the audiobook and realized how much I really like rail against weddings throughout this book. <laughs> like it's very clear that I have feelings about the wedding industry and I think for me a big part of it is because man, people love spending my money in that way. Like that is the number one threat I think to my savings rate in my bank account is other people's weddings. First of all, I live in New York City. No one gets married here. So every element of it is travel. And then you've got, you know, if you're in it, then you have the dress and the makeup and the hair and the trips and the pre-events and blah blah blah. My husband and I, I did the math and I shouldn't have, have spent over $20,000 on other people's weddings. And we have, I think seven weddings we're already invited to between like 2021 and 2022 and many more that I think are going to be on deck. And I get really amped up about this because weddings and going to weddings is not how I would choose to spend my money. Now for him, he views it differently. It's a chance to see people that we love. It's a chance to spend that kind of time together where I'm like, we can see them on our own time. I want to go take a nice vacation. So part of it then also comes down to boundary setting within the realm of maintaining relationships and not hurting people's feelings, but also me not going and feeling super cranky about being there in the first place. Part of that Is I don't go to every single pre-event. Like if you're going to be those people that have an engagement party, a bridal shower, a bachelorette party, and a wedding, girl, I'm not coming to all of them. We're going to have a conversation. I'll be at your wedding and maybe give you one of the other things. Like I'm just not doing it. I'm not spending two thousand dollars on your wedding. I'm not doing it. I don't. I love you, but I don't value that on that level. And that is a boundary that's important to set. Can it backfire? Absolutely have I had a falling out with somebody over a wedding? Oh yes, I have. Because (laughs) they felt like I should be paying for every little thing that they wanted me to be doing. I also was in my early 20s. I feel like I've better learned how to communicate boundaries since then. But the boundary part is really critical because we talk about honest, open communication. But if There's a level of pain that you're experiencing because of somebody else's actions. You have to be willing and able to set a boundary. And it's not that it's always going to be easy and that boundary might move throughout your relationship, but that is a really critical part of this whole conversation. And also you have to put on your own financial mask before you're assisting others. So when we also think about family dynamics and financially helping family members, especially if you're the one who maybe has come to a different part of a socioeconomic ladder and you really want to help, but at the same time, maybe you've gotten married, maybe you've had a kid, you've bought a house, you have to also take care of your household and then focus on ways to help others.
0: I know when people are coming to these awkward money conversations, especially with friends, part of the reaction is why do it in the first place? And I think. My story about the restaurant and your talking about weddings is exactly why you unfortunately are forced to have these conversations. It also drives home the point that not only do you have to set boundaries, but you actually have to tell people why you're setting those boundaries. And I think we forget to include the why when we turn people down.
1: Absolutely. The why is one of the most critical elements, which is to call back to why I think it's important to a- at least acknowledge if you have debt. You don't have to tell them what it is. You know, Maybe it's credit card debt, maybe it's student loans, maybe it's a mix. You don't have to disclose all of that, but I do think it is helpful to say, hey, I am trying really hard this year to pay off at least one of my student loans. So I love you and I would love to be there for you in a different way, but I cannot attend X. Or you can do a kind of hybrid, birthday dinners are a great example you know, everybody's going to want to split the check. You know, there's going to be that one person that orders like the most expensive thing and the most expensive bottle of wine, and then wants to split the bill. And if you need to play like a very intense level of defense on that, you could say, I, and I do think it helps to give your example of, I'm trying to pay off a student loan by the end of this year, or I'm trying to save up to go to so-and-so's wedding or whatever it is that you're doing. And then, offer an alternative. I'd love to come for a drink before the dinner. I'd love to meet you after for dessert. I'd love to have you over and I'll cook you your favorite meal. Something else as well, that old compliment sandwich routine, the counter offer technique, whatever you want to call it is really effective. I do talk a lot. I've said it in talks and I've talked about it a bit in the book. One of my biggest regrets of my early twenties is that I didn't invest enough into friendships and into relationships. I think that I was very focused almost too much on the boundaries and very focused on earning the money. And if there was an opportunity for any sort of shift at the, the coffee house, babysitting, extra shift at my main job, I would pick it up and I would say no to people all the time. And we often talk about, you know, it hurts their feelings when you say no, people don't like hearing no in the context of romantic relationships, but it's true in platonic. Like nobody wants to hear no. So if you just say no, every time somebody asks you to do something, they're going to stop asking. And that is one of the things too, that we have to find a balance between our our own financial wants and investing into other things that need to be important, like our relationships as well.
0: It's an important point because we often talk about our Protecting our financial well being. But if we don't protect the other part, which is our emotional well being, we'll be bereft in other ways. And I guess that's why that communication part is so important. Let's talk about finances a little bit more. I'm interested in the idea of talking to your coworkers and discussing money at the workplace. When I first heard this, my first thought is, of course, why ever would I want to talk about things like salary with my coworkers? But the truth of the matter is it can be really beneficial.
1: It can be, particularly if you're thinking about negotiating. And also just to unearth potential wage gaps. Uh, there's an example in the book that feels like such an urban legend. And I when I heard it from the person I was interviewing, I'm like, Psh, that just feels <laughs> fake. But I will say the story. This woman that I interviewed, Alexander Dickinson, is a negotiation expert and she was working with a client and her client had been obviously encouraged to go ask people what they make and found out that two of the people who work at a similar position made, I believe it was about $10,000 more than she was making, which felt like a significant difference because they were doing the same type of work. So she goes in to speak to her manager and basically says very bluntly, but very calmly. you know, I've recently discovered there's a bit of a pay discrepancy between what I'm earning and a coworker who does a similar position. And I just wanted to have an understanding about why that might exist. So not accusatory, not going in guns blazing. And her manager goes, well, that's odd because we have a pay range and there shouldn't be that big of a discrepancy. Let me look into it. There had been a typo in payroll and she got hired that is crazy but the thing is of course that kind of stuff happens and that is just a really simple idea of having an having these conversations knowing what people who do your role make makes at either your office or other offices can be really helpful both information for negotiating making sure that a typo didn't happen in payroll all that kind of stuff Of course, though, we have to acknowledge the fact that it's not always safe at work to ask your coworkers what they make. You might have a company that really frowns on that. And while it is illegal in most cases for them to tell you you cannot talk about salary, they can find another reason to fire you. Like (laughs) that's not obviously going to be on record as the reason they'll fire you, they'll find something else. So you can, of course, then look at other options for who to ask. It doesn't have to be the people in your physical office. It can be people who do a similar job, similar size company in the same city. Cold pitching on LinkedIn is a great way to start compiling this information. But it is really important to, especially for women, especially for people of color, who might work in an industry where wage gaps are pretty prevalent, to have these conversations to make sure that there is no disparity for that reason. And there's another example of that in the book as well about a woman who unearthed. She, who is a woman of color and other women of color, were earning a white woman who was significantly junior to them. They were all earning about the same amount. And that wasn't right for all the different titles that they held.
0: It definitely gives an even more important reason than your own financial well-being. But to look at our well-being as a society and some of these inequalities are slow to being unearthed. So it's nice to see that not only are you helping yourself, but you might be helping a bunch of other people at your job also. It's also important for freelancers, right? People who own their own businesses. The imposter syndrome does funny things to ourselves. And sometimes we don't necessarily ask for what we're worth.
1: And I would argue, too, we're operating in even more of a vacuum when you're self-employed because you don't have you know, the salary.com, the glassdoor.com, all of those resources to go get an estimate based on all this aggregated data. You have to talk to other people. Also, we're negotiating way more than your average traditionally employed person who maybe negotiates once a year for their salary, with the exception of certain types of positions. We're probably negotiating two to three times a month different types of contracts. So one, we can hone that skill very quickly, which is great, but you also do have to have those conversations. And I cannot tell you how many times in my freelance career I have earned, I am not kidding when I say tens of thousands of dollars more collectively by talking to other people about what they would have or have charged for similar work. And You do have to make sure that you're talking to people, again, that are in comparable positions. You can't be looking at somebody that's so much further down the road in their career and be like, well, if they made that amount of money, I should ask for that. Obviously, that's not the case. Just the same as if you're, you know, second rung up from entry level employee, you're not asking the VP what they made at their job either.
0: I think one of the easiest ways to either increase your salary or your net worth is to make sure you're not leaving money on the table. And of course, you can do that in an intelligent way. But it's a very important point for most young professionals, especially at the beginning of your career, because if you don't start that process early, you're continuously playing catch up.
1: You are. And that's a big part, too, in the negotiation conversation. It got brought up that If you're trying to close, let's say, a wage gap that you've unearthed, and let's say that's a 20% difference between you and somebody else in your office. Well, sure, you can try to negotiate for that, but then you're you're just catching up. So that person's about to get another raise too, and you're not necessarily match for match. But the other thing is 20% can be a really big jump at a lot of companies. What might make more sense, and it's going to sound super millennial, is to look at a different company. Like It's very hard to negotiate that way up within the structure you're currently in. Most people usually end up getting the big raises when they jump.
0: And that's, yeah. why it's also, and that's why it's also so important to know the salary data out there because when you do jump ship and you go to that new job, you don't necessarily have to tell them what you were making at your last job, but if you're gonna make a persuasive argument once they give you the job, you need to know what other people should be making at your level.
1: And I would also argue you should not tell them if they ask you, what did you make at your last job? One, know your legal rights. Some cities and states, that is illegal for them to ask. Two, the old politician pivot. You don't answer the question you're asked. You answer the question you wanted to be asked. And so you say, well, for the job that you're hiring, I'm not willing to earn less than blah and answer it that way.
0: By the way, I found that as a podcast interviewer, some of my guests are really good at the politician pivot, too, of not answering the question I ask, but answering the question they want to ask. But that's neither here nor there.
1: I have done it a couple of times, but the, every time I do it, I'm usually like, well, to employ the old politician pivot. And then I'll I'll answer <laughs> what I wanted to answer. So I'm very bad at it because I acknowledge that I'm doing it.
0: I want to transition to talking about money with your parents? Because I've, believe it or not, found that talking to your coworkers, friends, and even spouse is much easier than having the conversation with either your parents or your siblings. Why are family money talks so fraught?
1: I just want to say, I was like nodding emphatically as you were saying that, because I know they cannot necessarily see me right now. But man, this question is such a good one. And it is because you're kind of upending the paradigm in the relationship. Your parent is the parent and you are the child and they know better and they know more and they are supposed to be looking out and caring for you. Plus you're bringing up their mortality, which is just always a tough thing for folks. And the thought that even if it's not necessarily their mortality that you bring up, you could be bringing up the fact that they will age they may not be able to care for themselves independently at some point. They may lose agency and autonomy over their own body. That is really hard. No one really wants to think about that part of their life. So you're bringing all of these really heightened emotional things into this conversation. And if not done very gracefully and tactfully and carefully carefully, It also can end in really bad ultimatums. I think there's so many TV shows and movies where you see the kids be like, mom, dad, you have to move into the retirement home or you have to move in with us. You're going to hurt yourself or someone else, stuff like that. And you shouldn't be talking to your parents like they're your child either. You have to respect this relationship dynamic as well. And also how hard it is for them to admit that they might have to lose some level of autonomy.
0: I want to talk in a moment about how you do that gracefully and tactfully. But before I do, it's a really important point to drive home that these conversations are important because whether you want to face it or not, as an adult, your parents at some point will probably need your input in their financial well-being.
1: Yep, or even if they financially are okay. I think it's also really important to acknowledge the emotional element and the isolation that often comes with aging and that you need to also be having a conversation about if none of you live near your parents, children wise, like my sister and I do not live near our parents. And if one of them dies and the other one is alone, that needs to be a conversation about that isolation. Like, are you going to move up near us? Or are we going to move down near you? Do you want to move into more of a retirement community type setting? These kind of things are also really incredibly important to be discussing. And obviously, all of that is connected to money and career as well, because you might not be able to just uproot your life and move to your parents. Or if you do, and one of the things that gets referenced in the book as well, is it could be you as a partner to a spouse have this either cultural expectation that you're going to be caring for your parents, that your spouse might not have that relationship necessarily and be resentful of that type of connection. So that also needs to be a conversation with your partner and how much you're going to spend. It's also interconnected, but it is really important to have the conversation early. And especially if you believe your parents are going to be resistant have it early and be fairly consistent about bringing it up and not saying every week, maybe not even every month, but a couple of times a year at the very least. And if you can't make any headway, think about bringing in another person, perhaps a third party, whether it is a religious leader, a community leader, another family member, a really close family friend, somebody, or doctor, somebody that can maybe get them to talk at least to them about it.
0: In the first half of the show, Aaron and I discuss how to start these awkward money conversations with friends and a potential spouse. After the break, we delve into where to begin with your parents. But first... You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right, we've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later... you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Wish you were in early on some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Nanolock Security, a company offering IoT cyber protection, including billions of low end devices that other technologies cannot protect. NanoLock is the only device-level protection that is near zero power requirements and is agnostic to the operating system. You can get in early on NanoLock and other unique opportunities at ourcrowd.com slash E-A-I. The OurCrowd account is free. Just go to ourcrowdcom slash E-A-I. What I really loved about your upcoming book, Broke Millennial Talks, Money, is not only do you bring up all these issues, but you provide some specific scripts. So let's talk about how we tactfully and gracefully start this conversation with our parents. What are some of those beginner scripts to ease into the conversation?
1: Well, one, you know your parents. So there's a couple of different versions, just in case, like, are your parents more the emotional kind or the hyperpractical kind? What are they going to respond to? One of the really big things to bring up is you come from a place of I and like, what is causing you potential pain? So I want to have this conversation. I think it's important laying that groundwork and also bringing up why you think it's critical. Maybe we have a history of Alzheimer's. We have a history of cancer. We have a history of diabetes in our family. And also bringing up that you want to have these conversations for their benefit and protection. This isn't, where's your will? How much am I getting? Like, don't bring up those kind of documents. <laughs> be talking about things like, I don't want to have to make a medical decision for you without having it and writing what you want. I don't want to have to try to be figuring out the legal logistics of things when we're in maybe a grief or a stressful, high a high stress situation. It would be really helpful for me emotionally and mentally if you had a power of attorney, if you had a healthcare proxy, all of those kind of documents, particularly because it's about decisions while they're alive and it matters as opposed to like, well, you're dead. So where's the will? And there's also ways that you can just kind of start getting context clues if your parents are not going to directly have this conversation. First, we all know parents love giving advice so, so much. So, what can you do to be asking them advice that also might give you insights about their financial situation? Mom, dad, I just got access to my first 401k. I'm not entirely sure how to pick investments. What do you suggest? Obviously, only do that if it's an authentic conversation. If your parents, if you know your parents are bad with money and they know you're good with money, don't do that one. But that's just an example. Or, mom, dad, you know, Scotty and I just got married and we're trying to figure out the best way to do our wills and how to handle all of that. How did you guys handle that? And maybe the answer is, oh, we haven't yet. Or maybe it's, oh, we use this lawyer. Check him out. So any little way to also be picking up the context clues. And then also there's the classics of, you know, Jackie's parents just retired and moved down to Florida. What are you guys thinking? What do you want retirement to look like for you? And that could also just be a flippant answer of, well, I'm never going to retire. Or maybe it's, oh, actually, I've been thinking about this a lot. We're going to buy an RV and travel around the country and do all of this. And then great. But those questions slowly over time starts to give you a picture. It doesn't have to be you sit down solemnly at a table, get every piece of information all in one sitting. This can be a slow process.
0: I love the ninja technique of asking for advice because I think it's brilliant mom and dad, I'm starting to look at wills and doing my medical power of attorney. What did you guys do? I I, I think that's an amazing technique and really broaches the subject very gracefully, I guess is the best way I could say it.
1: It does. And also use family, either family situations or if your parents are gossiping about somebody that you know, like, well, her first husband died and he actually hadn't updated his beneficiary, so she's getting the money or whatever it is. Use that as a jumping off point. Oh, wow. Do you guys have your will set up? Do you have your beneficiaries updated? Do you have your life insurance policy? Those are all also great openings.
0: So we've talked about how to discuss these awkward money conversations with friends and coworkers and parents. I want to go back to the spouse issue or maybe the potential spouse issue. How do you know when you're at that point in a relationship? Maybe you are just started dating or maybe you're finally getting serious. How do you know when it's time to bring up that conversation and how do you start?
1: There's different levels of money conversation. So when we just think broadly financially naked, I think of it as kind of like a 101 and then the 201 is the full frontal financial nudity. But in the one hundred and one, if you're just kind of casually dating, getting to know each other, you're talking about things that are more like lifestyle slash maybe a little bit of context clues. But what kind of trips are we taking? What kind of dates do we go on? How much do we spend on gifts? Do we give gifts? What, like what do we think about with? Is it Valentine's Day is a big deal or like yeah, who really cares? What are we? What are? What's our lifestyle expectation? I think ties into a lot of that money conversation early on. I don't think it's super critical for you to know somebody that you're casually dating's, you know, salary, debt situation, credit score. If they want to offer it up, if you want to have that conversation, great. But if not, that's okay. You're also getting context clues as well of do they use coupons? What kind of car do they drive? What kind of house do they live in? What is their job? You might have a sense of how much they earn on that. The other thing then when you're getting ready for that full frontal financial nudity conversation. I think it needs to happen when you look at the person and think, I could marry you. So I want it to happen before you're engaged. Not saying that this conversation might change your mind on whether or not you want to marry this person, but I do think it is critical to be having that conversation well before you actually take that engagement and certainly before you take that marriage step. When you get married, I don't want there to be any financial surprises, which is another reason I advocate for prenups. You have to disclose all of your information in a prenup conversation. So you should know every bit of debt that exists. You should understand the person's salary, but also, and perhaps just as if not more importantly, what are our financial goals individually and as a team? What is our kind of plan around saving? And how are we going to spend? And how are we going to bank? And having those conversations are also a really critical part of all of this.
0: It also gets to the point of finding out some of what your partner's money scripts are. You quote Brad Klontz often in your book. I've interviewed him before. And that's the point where you really start have to start understanding what their innate beliefs about money are. And what money means to them in their life, because going forward as a couple, that's going to become an issue at some point.
1: It will. And I also hope it will give you compassion. That is one of the biggest reasons I think you need to truly unearth your partner's emotional relationship to money. Is so when there is a behavior that you're not understanding because it's not the way you would react, hopefully you have compassion to why they're making that decision or you understand This is how they grew up with money. So that's why this is a stressor or a trigger or a pain point or whatever terminology you want to use. Because we all know you can get into some doozies of fights about money. And a lot of it has very little to do with the actual money and everything to do about the emotion around it. And so pausing and talking about why you're reacting the way you are can be really critical and important. I recommend trying to disclose the financial slash emotional baggage to money when you're not like the heat of the moment of a fight. Let's have that when we're feeling calm, but try to remember that when you're also in engaged in perhaps a, a little bit of high tense situations.
0: Let's look at the darker side of this conversation. Tell us a little bit about financial infidelity. What is it and how do we deal with that?
1: Financial infidelity... And also financial abuse, I would kind of separate into two categories, although there certainly can be overlap. Financial infidelity is when your partner is making financial decisions or engaging in financial behaviors and hiding it from you, particularly ones that are damaging to your overall financial health as a couple. I think of gambling as a really classic example. It's one thing to say, hey, I'm going to the casino with somebody's, I'm planning to spend no more than $500 that's your fun money, go have a good time. And chronically gambling, pulling money out of retirement funds, pulling money out of savings that perhaps your partner isn't paying attention to, particularly if you're the chief financial officer of the family and you're making decisions, and it could be investment decisions, it could be overspending. There's so many different ways that you can commit financial infidelity because it's in simplest terms doing something without disclosing it to your partner. But that's also based on what is your expectation in your relationship, because that is something that Dr. Klontz brought up is that for some people, that's not a breach of trust to them because of how they have set up their financial lives. If they're 100% separate, even as a married couple, you can go do whatever you want with your money. You can go blow all of it. That's fine. That's your money. So that's not financial infidelity. But if you're totally joint, and you drain your 401k to go make an investment that goes south and you're not telling your partner, that could be financial infidelity. And it can be small infractions too. Like maybe you two agreed that you wouldn't spend more than $500 without checking in on each other. And then you went and spent a thousand and you're not telling. It might be a small infraction, but it's still an infraction.
0: It reminds me about how much gray area there actually is with these conversations The other thing that comes to mind is that we often shoot for perfection and end up shooting ourselves in the foot instead. You are the expert. You wrote a book about these awkward money conversations. You affectionately call your husband by his nickname Peach in your writing and on your blog. I assume that you guys never have money arguments anymore now that you've gotten to this elevated place.
1: I actually... Open up the entire book with a story about him saying, We should probably make sure it doesn't come off like we just settle everything perfectly, because that is certainly not the case. And there are points throughout the book, too, where I sprinkle in some of my own stories of, Yeah, of course we fight about money. I mean, again, I kind of did a call out with the whole wedding thing. We have a different emotional reaction to that. So What we're fighting about when it comes to whether or not I want to drop $2,000 going to somebody's wedding is I'm looking at it from a purely financial logical place and he's looking at it from more of an emotional place, but it's still a disagreement. And no one, unless that somehow that magically both of you have the exact same emotional relationship with money, the exact same ethos around how to spend, save and invest. I'm sure there's like six couples in the whole world who are like that. But the reality is you're going to have disagreements about money. A big part of it is just how effectively can you disagree and communicate through those disagreements and have those conversations in a way that, yeah, you might have little fights here and there about money, but you're going to still be respectful with each other and you're going to figure out a way to compromise. And I want to actually just briefly point out on that compromise. One of the pieces of advice that I got from one of the folks in the book is that that doesn't always have to mean a down-the-middle split. The example she uses is, if you want to spend $3,000 on a couch and he wants to spend $1,000 on the couch, that doesn't have to mean that you spend $2,000 on the couch. That can mean one of you takes the win on this one, and in the future, somebody gets to take a win on the other one. But an example somebody else brought up, you got to let it go. Like If you decide, and I have felt this way with the apartment I'm sitting in right now, If you agree to spend more money on something that is a perpetual payment, like a house, like a car, and let's say you're like me and you're the CFO of your marriage, so you're actually writing the bill or paying the bill, rather, every month. You might have some feels every time you cut that check. You're like, you know what? I didn't want to spend this much money on this apartment. I wanted to spend X on this apartment You gotta let it go because otherwise, you're just gonna keep fighting about it. And the decision has already been made. Once the decision has been made, release it. Whatever it is that you have to do to release it, you have to. You can't keep nitpicking at your partner about that decision because fundamentally, you ended up agreeing to it. So you gotta let it go.
0: What we're talking about is fighting fair, right? Because every couple is gonna fight about money. You gave two good examples. One is, Instead of compromising trade wins, the idea of don't buy the $2,000 couch because one of you wants to spend $3,000 and one of you wants to spend $1,000, let one person win one time and then maybe in the future, the other part of the couple wins. The other point was to let it go, right? So you can't hold on to these grudges forever. Are there any other quick tips about fighting fair in a relationship such that you can have these disagreements without it blowing up the marriage?
1: I think a big thing too is going back to that idea of compassion And just try to be treating your partner, even in high stress moments with the compassion that you also want to be receiving. And one thing too, that I also always recommend to couples, no matter what you're fighting about is the old, this is what I hear you saying, because sometimes this is a communication issue where you're just misunderstanding the person's point. And You should repeat back at certain points, especially at really stressful moments of, okay, I just want you to know what I'm hearing you say is, and repeat it back however you're interpreting it. Because you also might find that's not what they're intending for you to take away. So making sure that you're actually understanding what you're fighting about, because we all get into also those fights where it's like, that's not what I meant. (laughs) So it is really important to make sure you're totally you're on the same page about what the fight is even about in the first place, which sounds really silly, but it can happen.
0: So sum it up for us. Let's look at the big picture. No one likes having these awkward money conversations, but clearly they're important to someone who's thinking about going out and buying your book. What are the consequences of not learning how to have these conversations?
1: The consequences of not learning how to have these conversations is this will forever be a pain point. And you can have your own personal financial health be at an A plus 100%. You're investing and saving in alignment with whatever your goals are. You are on track to achieve everything. But at some point, you're going to have to navigate awkward money conversations It might be small, seemingly inconsequential, and sometimes saying no to invitations to things, having to stick up for yourself about splitting a bill at a dinner table. And other times it can be really big, like your spouse's family needs financial support. And what is that going to mean for you? Or your parents need support or your sibling, or maybe a friend comes to you to ask for help. These are important things to learn how to navigate. And I also just want to go back to one more thing. When we think about fighting about money or even just engaging in a conversation about money, goal setting and going back to your goals is also a really critical way to either give an excuse if you don't want to do something. Hey, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to save for this. I'm trying to pay off this. Or, okay, We keep having this fight. Let's go back to the numbers. This is what we said we're trying to achieve. If we make this decision, this is how that's going to impact the goal that we had set. And goal setting, it's such a boring answer, but it's also the base of everything you do with your financial life, how you're investing, how you're saving, how you're paying off debt, and then also how we talk about money.
0: So it comes down to set your goals, communicate, set your boundaries, and then reevaluate. And I think that really sums it up really well. The book is Broke Millennial Talks Money, Scripts, Stories, and Advice to Navigate Awkward Financial Conversations is going to drop what, December 29th? That's right, December 29th. So if people wanna interact with you more or learn more, or perhaps even buy an early copy of your book, where can they find you?
1: Well, you can find me on Instagram at Broke Millennial Blog, on Twitter at Broke Millennial The website is brokemillennial.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter. And then I would also want to say for anybody who's interested in buying the book, particularly before December 29th, if you email proof of purchase to team at brokemillennial.com, you can unlock a bunch of pre-order authors. I have an exclusive bonus chapter, the prenup checklist. So if you want to have the discussion guide for how to have a prenup conversation, And the, are you your parents' retirement plan checklist? So everything that you need to be asking your parents, you can unlock all of those pre-order bonuses as well.
0: I just finished reading the book and there are really some very, very helpful scripts and tips for having these difficult conversations, which while most of us would like to avoid them anyone who's lived enough life realizes that most of these conversations in the end are impossible to avoid if you want to take care of yourself and your loved ones. So I highly suggest you go out and buy it. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Aaron Lowry.
1: It was great to be here.
0: That's a wrap. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to remind you that if you are enjoying the conversations here at Earn and Invest, but wish you could have them more often than just on Mondays and Thursdays, be sure to check out our Facebook group. That's at facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. Over there, we have a community of people who discuss very similar topics to what you have here on the podcast. We discuss finances, We talk about current events, and yes, occasionally we touch on politics. Pretty much it's a place for community to come together and have those difficult conversations. One of the conversations I've been thinking a lot about is the one about purpose, You may have heard me say in the past that our goal is to really search out our individual purpose, identity, and connections in the world. I really think that's what it's more about, more than about whether we make enough money. Certainly, we want to have some financial independence. We want financial security. But after you have that amount of money that brings you to stability, life is really about finding happiness. And part of that happiness is purpose. I was thinking the other day about purpose and how difficult people find it to be in a sense that they can't decide what their purpose should be. They say, look, I've got a stable job, I have a family, I have kids, I'm rejoicing in all those things, and yet I'm not exactly sure what I should be doing with my life I definitely got to that point when I realized I was financially independent. When I decided to step away from being a doctor, I then had to make a decision about what to replace that time with. I had to question what my purpose was in this world. What is my unique identity if I'm not being a doctor? I decided to focus on communication, on writing, on podcasting, on public speaking, I knew deep down inside that that was a purpose waiting to bubble up. It was something that I had done throughout my career, and yet I had always pushed it to the wayside. I always had said, well, you can't make money doing that, so I'm going to spend all my time concentrating on being a doctor. Now that I didn't have to worry about the money aspect, I was allowed to delve into those things that were really important for me. And one of the things that's interesting about that is, you know, I was really good at being a doctor. It felt great to get these accolades and to be respected for doing it. Yet, communication, speaking, podcasting, writing, those are all things that I'm a novice at, that I don't have any expertise at. And so it was very difficult to make this jump from something I was renowned for to something that I had no experience with. And that was part of the scary thing about going after my own purpose. I was bo by the fact that I had enough money that I could fail at it. I could fail at it drastically. And that would be okay, as long as I was enjoying the process of doing these things. We think of purpose as something that's really difficult to find. And I know a lot of people struggle with, well, how do I find my purpose? I remember back to childhood. And There was a time in my life when I was extremely purposeful. And I think as we talk about that time in my life, it becomes clear that at least for me then, and I think for me now too, we make the mistake of thinking that our purpose in life has to be some big grand goal. We have to change the world or change ourselves or change things around us. And while I think that's wonderful, and if your purpose has those aspects to it. It's great. But when I was a kid, I found amazing purpose and quite a bit of happiness in something very simple. And you know what that was? It was baseball cards. When I was a kid, I was in love with collecting baseball cards and it consumed a huge amount of my time. I can remember being seven or eight years old and watching the Cubs on TV. And I had a love affair with baseball. I watched every game back at that time during the summer. The games were on Channel 9 WGN, and they would be on every day. And I'd have camp during the day, and I'd rush home. And the games would start at like one fifteen for some reason. That was the time that all the games started. And I would rush home to catch the second half of the game. And somewhere in there, I discovered baseball card collecting. There was a local antique store down the road that had started selling antiques but eventually got into selling baseball cards. There was a panel at the back full of baseball cards and the owner would sit there and he'd often chat with the neighborhood kids and I found my place and I would spend hours upon hours buying these packs of baseball cards, opening them up, eating that horrible piece of gum that you would find in between the two stacks of cards. And coveting these cards, I would collect them. I would put them in order. I would try to collect a whole set each year. So I had to collate something like seven or 800 different cards, and I would go out and buy more packs to try to get the ones that I didn't have. And then I would sit there day after day watching the Cubs, sorting through my baseball cards, finding the best players and the most valuable ones, as I delved deeper and deeper into collecting, I started buying periodicals and price guides, and I started meeting more people and going to more stores that sold baseball cards. And I was happy for years of my life. This was my purpose. It was the thing that I dreamed about. It was the reason I woke up early in the morning. I would get up at seven, even on a Saturday, and you would find me in our TV room with my stacks of cards in different piles, sorting, putting together, putting them in books or in laminate. This is what I did with myself, and it was a real happy part of my life. And as an adult, I look back at that time and say, well, how do I recapture that sense of purpose that I had when I was a kid? And it's almost laughable, right? Because the adult in me sees playing with baseball cards as juvenile. This isn't going to change the world. It's not going to help anyone. On the other hand, it gave me a lot of joy. And even to this day, when I'm in a store and I see a pack of baseball cards, that joy springs up in my chest and I remember that time. Does that mean I need to go back to collecting baseball cards? Is that what I should be doing with my life now? No. But it does show that what we decide will be our purpose in life can vary. It can have deep meaning or it can just be fun. And that purpose can change throughout our lives. So, As a kid, for me, it was baseball cards. Maybe as an adult, it'll be communicating or podcasting or writing. Maybe in 10 years, it'll be something completely different. The point being is that we have to find those things that give us joy. We have to find those things that get us to wake up early every morning as with baseball cards and with communicating, one of the things that I enjoy most about both of them is there was never an end. I always was continually striving to get to the next level. When it was a kid, it was getting that older, better, more difficult to find baseball card. As an adult, it's creating a better podcast or writing a better blog post or giving a better public speech. There's always somewhere to improve. There's always a next level to get to. On the other hand, I can sit back and enjoy where I am now. And I think that's the point. If anything here on Earn and Invest, I hope when you listen to these podcasts, I hope when you listen to our guests, you ultimately find that the money is a tool. The financial knowledge is a way to get you to a place where you are free to explore your purpose. You're free to podcast or blog. You're free to spend your time collecting baseball cards and collating them and watching the latest game. You're free to do whatever you want, whatever makes your heart sing, whatever gives you purpose is what you should be pursuing. And whatever that is may change from today or tomorrow. It may be different next year or next month. It doesn't matter what I hope to help you find, what I hope to find myself, is the freedom to pursue that purpose joyfully. Awesome. Cool. That was a lot of fun. I thought, I don't know about you, but I felt like we were really able to have a conversation that fit the book and that really kind of talked about a lot of what i at least gleaned from the book
1: yeah i'm excited to hear it because it's also nice and thank you for just focusing on the third one because <laughs> i feel like a lot of times when i have this conversation like let's go back i'm like oh do we have to <laughs> so this will be a great one also to just send out to be like if you want to know about book three here's a bunch of stuff
0: yeah and and i don't like 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 I don't like just interviewing people about a book per se what I really liked about this book is the topic like so for a podcaster to say okay today we're going to talk about how to have awkward money conversations that's a great podcast topic, right? Yeah. Um, to say, hey, we're going to have Erin Lowry here to talk about her new book or to talk about her series of books. While you are interesting, it doesn't have kind of the, the the stuff people are looking for the same as that more topical. And so yeah. so your book itself, I knew I wanted to interview you. I didn't know what it was going to be about yet until I read your book and put it all together and then said, okay, that's, that's the conversation I want to have. So I knew I'd find something that I wanted to talk to you about specifically. Um, But the book helped me really narrow it down to, to exactly what I thought would be good for people to hear and listen to and will help you obviously, because my goal is that you, you shine and do great and, and sell more books than ever before. So (laughs) anyway, I can help that, you know,
1: fingers crossed, fingers crossed.